You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are back in our second week discussing Death Comes to Marlow by Robert Thurgood, taking us all the way through to the end of Chapter 32 this week. Herds, mm, the Flex. trio, continue their quest to quell the disquiet come to their humble town. Yeah, and to bring great entertainment to us, the reader, as they go from one shenanigan to the next. Uh, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in this stretch of chapters. There's Susie using her her network of radio listeners to track down a car, speeding yep, car. Never ask Marge how she's doing. Don't never do it. It's a bad idea. Or else you have to cut her off. <laughs> we catch up with Beck's affair. Before- before before we like, move too far on, I did think it was pretty okay. funny that they were like, she she knew never to ask Marge, and then she asks Marge, and then there's no consequences. Well, yes, that was she. That was cute. <laughs> Look, because she knows what she's doing. She knows Marge. I, as a radio host, felt that paranoia, even <laughs> if the book wouldn't have sold it to anyone who wasn't me. I definitely feel like I like Susie is is my favorite because she's she's not. The face of the operation, right? That that honor goes to Bex. Well, yeah, she's got a face for radio, right? Well, exactly. She's she's the heart and she's the voice, but she's not the face. And I really do enjoy that. The fact that their face is kind of kind of puts people off and their yeah. muscle is also the best speaker. Like that's kind of a fun mm. subversion of those two character archetypes. But yes, Bex affair is the other big, is the other big deal. Yeah. Bex is uh, supposedly having an affair because she's dissatisfied with her husband because she wants to be the brains of the outfit. And she doesn't feel like her husband respects that and all this, mm-hmm. it's all this stuff. Uh, but it turns out to be that she's, gotten really deep into cryptocurrency and she hates how unethical it is and how much money she's made off of it, which is a wild, a wild series of twists. It is so <laughs> strange to have political discourse about cryptocurrency. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a cozy <laughs> book. And then they just throw in like, actually, cryptocurrency is evil and it's destroying the world. And it's like, whoa, like, not that I disagree with Robert. I need to be very clear here. I am not a cryptocurrency guy, but yeah. it is it is very left field. I, on the one hand, really appreciate how much of a just absolute out of nowhere twist it is, mm. but it also kind of would have been fun, I think, to set it up a bit earlier. Like, it does make sense for her character as someone who has a lot of money, but is still kind of nervous about money to be... In, invested in that space. There's, there's no direct foreshadowing of cryptocurrency, which is a weird statement to have to say in the first place. But like, <laughs> <laughs> there is there is no cryptocurrency I wish there'd be a, been a few more meme coins yeah. in my murder mystery book. If they book. just said the word Doge once, I would have <laughs> known what was going on and been on board for it, you know? It doesn't really matter, though, is the thing. Like, the, the whole point yeah. of... As I mean, obviously, Beck's having too much money from something unethical. And she says, I think I should just give it to charity. Yes. And then she looks over at Susie, or more accurately, Judith looks over at Susie, who is currently in mountains of debt, has this rundown house. She can't, like, pursue her dream of being a radio host because she has to keep looking after dogs, which she does enjoy doing, but, like, it's not what she's like passionate about. And she's also putting herself more into debt to look after dogs to keep the radio show going because she's paying other people to look after dogs while she's on air. Well, she explicitly points out, and this is such a sad, like funny part of the book. 
yeah, those, those dog sitters that I had to pay to look after the dogs that I'm already being paid to look after, they really shaft you, don't they? <laughs> and so we know that she's she's paying more than she's earning for looking after the dogs, but also that her rates are, they're like mates rates, right? Like she's mm-hmm. she's just trying to be a good person. Whereas Bex mm-hmm. has become a businesswoman almost entirely by accident. Or she, she's found herself carrying a lot of the, the financial weight of the family in the wake of the, the previous book, which is a nice sort of carryover from when she like proved that she could be a detective and she could do things for herself. That's something that Judith and Susie have had, kind of, they've both had to do by necessity. They've had to like learn to look out for themselves. Whereas Bex is, uh, I guess, kind of struggling with that now with, with whether or not that's something that Colin wants. Um, it's something that she wants, something that they, they all kind of want to like yeah. be independent, but it's a, it's a struggle that Bex is kind of, dealing with in the especially in the second half of this book the thing that fascinates me is that then when we compare that with jenny rosanna and lady bailey Mm. where rosanna is definitely independent but it still feels like she's written to be independent in her reliance on family money Mm. lady bailey can't seem to separate herself from her previous marriage entirely like we'll we'll get into that in in a second Mm -hmm. and then jenny like what what is going on with Jenny Herds? What what is happening with this woman? Uh, you know, she's suffering a horrible grief because she was supposed to be marrying the man of her dreams, who would also get her a whole lot of money, and now and now she's she's not because he's super dead, and she's very sad about that. The way that she's portrayed in this stretch of chapters <laughs> is so interesting because it's so ordinary. Yeah. I mean, she she gets threatened a lot mm. by uh, by Tris, Tristy, Tristy boy. But it's like, it's obviously an act. What do you mean? We're not even in the mystery section yet. How dare you? We can get into the fact that this is an, an act in the mystery sense later, but it feels so strange in amidst all of this social and political critique to have a character like Jenny and to have characters like Lady Bailey there, who their application is definitely counter to the core criticisms that the book seems to be making i guess my my question is is that effective it's a great question i i'm interesting interested in what your thoughts on rosanna but certainly lady bailey is sort of a semi-villainous sort of character like she's Mm. sneaking around the estate on the night of the wedding which maybe implies that more people could have been sneaking about that night. Look, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Who knows what could be going on? Could, could be, be any, any number, number of three suspects. It could be Cat Hustleby. She could be the one. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll reserve final judgment as to whether this is an effective counter to the more proactive examples of the the leading trio. But clearly, uh, Robert is wanting to talk about the way that the patriarchy like dictates the lives of these of these upper class women. Yes. Clearly that is what we are we are looking at. It's kind of nice the way that it's done in a bit of a vacuum where like obviously Triss is still there on the scene treating his mother and Jenny pretty cruelly. They just hate each other. They just they just hate so each other. Much. The criticism of how the patriarchy affects these women is sort of separate from these characters. You know, they're they're two parallel narratives that still both have to do with the mystery, but we are not relying on the men in the story to show how the patriarchy is affecting women. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Triss is a, is kind of an interesting character to put as the, as the focal point of this, because every time we see him, he's like 
he's he's very weak. Mm. His character is that as soon as he is confronted, he says, oh, but the law says this. And then he runs away. <laughs> he like, <laughs> he's like, uh, actually, I am allowed to do these things. Mm-hmm. I do really enjoy his portrayal because of how light a touch he is on on the lives of those around him. He's almost like a like a like the specter of his father in a way, which is which is kind of fun. Well, yeah, it's also good because we don't really take a lot of time to explore and interrogate Lord Bailey's character yeah. because Triss is there to be that for us anyway. Yes, we see the echoes of his father and the way that he acts and the way that he tries to control things without actually doing anything important. <laughs> He's a fun one. One other thing, Herds, before we get into the the full swing of the the main mystery, mm-hmm. before I I talk about the yeah yeah before we lose our minds yeah the, the conundrum that I find myself in. There's mm-hmm. also this crossword and this meeting at the yeah. skate park that takes place. Yeah, there's a meeting at the skate park where they see a bunch of people go by, but like. They don't seem to meet anybody. It's a bit weird. I have two main thoughts. The first is, is that when we were initially presented this and it was like framed as though it was going to be a meeting in the first example we got from the crossword, Judith's like, oh, well, it's clearly going to be a couple of people meeting up Mm. and I'm curious if I should show up. I probably shouldn't. That would be strange. It would. And then the second one is also a meetup. And my assumption was going to be that- we were going to learn something about the timing trick mm. from this meeting. And maybe we will in the remainder of the book, but it kind of just seems to be that the guy who writes these crossword puzzles is meeting up with, it has to be one woman. Right. It's probably his <laughs> wife. Well, you know, it was just a bit of fun, you know, trying to find a way to have some, Specific uh, specific mechanism or puzzle to bring the two of them together in the middle, you know? That sounds good to me. I feel like you've just told me exactly what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> anyway, the next thing I want to touch on definitely gets a little deep into the mystery. So I might save that until we return at the end of the show to talk about the incredible problem that we have faced before me. It's a very complex situation, I'm sure. Very, very challenging. This is Death of the Reader. We are talking Robert Thurgood's Death Comes to Marlowe, up to and including Chapter 32. Stick around. More to come in your Murder Mystery World Tour. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Flex and Herds here with you, and we've just come off the back of covering Eight Detectives by mathematical genius Alex Pavesi, who joins us now from the UK. Alex, welcome to Death of the Reader. It is wonderful to have you. Hey, thank you for having me. So, Eight Detectives circles a mathematics paper on the permutations of detective fiction, exploring the base fundamentals required to create detective fiction. Was the paper itself ever something destined for construction? No, not really. Um, I thought it was quite helpful to, to leave the contents of the paper vague. Um, <laughs> I can tell you, you know, that this idea started with me wanting to kind of make a sort of list or like a kind of catalogue of all the different of different endings of detective fiction specifically. And uh, I mean, I tried to do that. It just got too much into kind of things that were a little ambiguous. So like, a classic ending might be like, you know, the least likely suspect is the murderer. It kind of got um, a little vague, sort of defining, you know, who is the most like, how likely people are as, as, as suspects, who's the most likely, who's the least likely. So I, I wanted something that had a bit more structure to it. And uh, that's when I sort of started leaning towards 
what you could do with kind of the overlap of of killers and suspects. So I never actually wrote the, I never actually considered writing the paper. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think you probably could write something like that, but I think probably most of what you'd have to say is covered in the book and it would be a very short and fairly modest, uh, <laughs> modest bit of uh, literature. Yeah. Now, when we compete in the, the blood sport arena over murder mysteries, the sort of fairness of the game is something that we talk about a lot. Um, but Grant's theory rarely talks about fairness. A lot of mm. modern murder mysteries like Martin Edwards' uh, Mortmain Hall and Janice Hallett's The Mystery- Mysterious Case of the Alps and Angels, they kind of make figuring out what the puzzle is a part of the puzzle. Um, which side of that line did you intend Eight Detectives to fall on? And in hindsight, where do you think that it actually landed? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have some opinions about this and and some people think I'm Good. wrong. You may, you may be in that category. Um, I mean, I generally think that detective fiction is kind of a giant sleight of hand in a very specific sense, which is that the setup of the puzzle doesn't give you enough information to define the answer. As you mentioned in your introduction, I, I have a background in math, so I kind of do a lot of puzzles and you know, that's kind of the, the, the defining feature of, of the puzzle is that there has to be one unique answer, right? And there has to be no ambiguity. And, and the answer might be silly and it might be sort of, you know, involve a lot of assumptions that weren't stated in the in the question. There has to be a unique answer. If there are two answers, then the whole puzzle falls apart. And I don't think detective fiction satisfies this quality. I think, you know, if you took any detective novel and you chopped off the last 10 pages and you gave it to five different authors, they would write you five different endings. Mm. I, I mean, some would be better than others, but they'd probably all find a way to make their endings work. And I think you can always do this, which means I don't think they work as puzzles, which is not to say that there's not kind of clever things in them and 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 like sort of elements of puzzles. And sometimes there are literally puzzles put in there, like anagrams for the names of suspects or whatever. Mm. But um, yeah, so this whole concept of fair play I kind of reject out of hand because I mean I know I know what it means and it's meaningful. You know, I'm not saying it, it's something people should stop saying, but like I think it it, it puts too much uh, weight on the puzzle element, which I just don't think is is valid. Them's fighting words. Them's fighting words on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, like obviously, like um, a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, but I I I. I I have yet to hear a good sort of uh, challenge to my argument. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, despite despite my saying that, I think one of the fun things for me is that I completely agree with you, but yet still love fair play, because I think that the most exciting forms of fair play is where authors use what you're talking about to create a puzzle that at the end you go like, oh, yeah, that really was satisfying in a bunch of these ways. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, so fair play. I, well, of course, like it's kind of hard without a precise definition, you know. Obviously, there are things like, um, you know, one of the classic rules is you can't have the murderer be someone who hasn't been mentioned before in, in the narrative. Obviously, that's that's more to do with um, reader satisfaction than anything to do with logic or, or whatever. Um, so I would say all of the fair play kind of concept is is, is actually to do with reader satisfaction rather than uh, anything logical. So I didn't really stick particularly hard to the notion of fair play within a detectives, but I did try to substitute other forms of reader satisfaction for it when I, uh, when I violated it. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, if something turns out to be a bit 
if, if the reality of something is revealed and you kind of raise an eyebrow at the, the fairness of it, I hope there's always something else that it brings that kind of compensates for that. I, I sort of like that you have a bit of a thesis statement for that as well with the way that we bring up inconsistencies in the first discussion between uh, Grant and Julia, because we kind of established from the very get-go that like, yeah, these things aren't going to make an exact sense, but that's the point. Yes, this is I, so. So zooming out and looking at the the broad story of, of the novel, the novel of, of Grant and Julia. I mean, this is not really a detective novel. Like this is kind of a, a sort of novel with a mystery at its heart, and then a surprise at the end. Everything else is in service to that story, and that story is not really fundamentally a murder mystery. Um, so I felt I felt I had some kind of freedom to to to, to not follow any of the rules that I didn't particularly want to follow. So I feel that in in some ways that uh, Eight Detectives is both a full length novel um, and a short story collection, right? Do you think that short story collections could learn something about flow from the manner that you've woven a linking narrative between the stories? I suppose, like, yeah, short story uh, collections kind of um, present present a few challenges to the to the reader. Number one is that with each new story, you kind of have to learn a new situation, a new set of characters. And that takes a bit of effort. And yeah, I was trying to make the reader invested in that by having the short stories form part of this whole. Uh, So I I definitely wanted, as people read the stories, I wanted them to be kind of guessing like where, what what the next story was going to be. So as you're finishing up one, you're already thinking like, what is the next? What's coming next? Uh, Not just in terms of kind of the structure, but in terms of sort of the settings. I mean, the book cycles through various sort of um, classic golden age detective fiction settings. And I wanted to make that kind of feel like a game. And with the inconsistencies in the stories, sort of um, I wanted people to be kind of thinking, you know, what could we do next? What, what's the next one going to be? Because um, they all have kind of different format. I mean, I didn't really think about it in terms of writing um, writing it as a short story collection. I mean, obviously, undeniably, it is it is halfway between a novel and a short story collection. But mm-hmm. um, I didn't sort of approach it by thinking, you know, what what are the kind of things about short story collections that I would want to improve on? Yeah, I mean, I just wasn't taking that approach. I mean, maybe I should have done, but because um, <laughs> I know a lot of people struggle with the book with the fact that it changes characters and setting every every few pages. Well, I suppose, Alex, it has been absolutely wonderful having you on the show and getting to feature Eight Detectives, which, I mean, we, we love metafiction on this show and your particular spin has been absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for the book and for joining us. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for featuring Eight Texas. <laughs> Thanks for writing it. This is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We're talking with Alex Pavesi about eight detectives. But right now, I'm going to throw you back to Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow. Stick around. More on your murder mystery world tour in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and it is Death Comes to Marlow. Oh. It is the second week discussing that novel, and I am in what feels like a pretty cold seat, to be honest. Not even lukewarm? Not even wouldn't lukewarm. Even, wouldn't even go that far? What do you mean? What? Uh, Listen, <laughs> I have been enjoying this book. Good. That's what I hope. I have loved the main three characters of this story. The cryptocurrency bit, 
was hilarious. Yeah, dude. And I love dunking on cryptocurrencies. Love me some crypts. Climate protests in the middle of my book about about wealthy families. Mm -hmm. I like it. It's a little bit of spicy politics. A little bit of political discourse in our cozy murder mystery. A little bit just to keep you awake. That's good stuff. It's the good good juju. All these things, (laughs) including an incredible leading trio. Yeah. Deserve a better mystery than this. Oh! (laughs) Oh, he went there! Oh! Flex, are you calling out Robert Thorogood for writing the most straightforward murder mystery that we've had on the show all year? I, listen, I am going to say this- All show in the last four years? I am going to say this in the hope (laughs) that Robert Thorogood is about to blow my mind and my face will be covered in egg next week. You better get every single detail of this murder. 100% 100% correct. All right, let's get started. You then. better you better get this down. I need you to tell me who, how, and why. Let's start with the who, the, the easy one. All right. <laughs> it was Jenny. What? But she's so unsuspicious. Oh, she's so unsuspicious. She's so angry, and she doesn't, she's not going to get any money because of the will getting ripped up. She's the only person that could have touched what? the body. What do you mean? To put the key back in it, oh she dives God. at it as soon as they show up. But what? What like, if Tris just killed him later? What if? What if it didn't even? What if he wasn't even dead? Well, it would make sense because Jenny is the nurse, and the doctor misattributing the time of death. Yeah, dude, is a classic murder mystery trick. It is. It is. Maybe she just made an honest mistake. Maybe she just dropped those keys in there on accident if, and forgot she had if them. If that was the case, yes. though we would have clearly established why that was impossible, mm. right? Like, if this mystery went that deep, to my mind, we would have more clearly established something like Jenny's dress had no pockets, she didn't have anywhere to hide the key, mm. or she wasn't holding her bag, or she threw her bag across the room when she entered to establish that she has dropped what she is carrying. But we don't really do any of that. The Layers of impossibility on this impossible crime do not create a necessary circumstance for a more intricate solution than Jenny ran over and stuck the key in his pocket. I don't think I have any any hard evidence against the idea that someone could have put keys in someone's pockets. You know, I don't even think that the uh-huh. pockets are mentioned until they find the keys. So that's pretty flimsy ground we're standing on here. But let's let's say she did. You reckon she's also the the physical killer? She pushed the cabinet. Onto Sir Peter Bailey? No, I reckon she and Tristram rigged the cabinet to fall by suspending it from magnesium tape. Suspending it from magnesium tape. Interesting. Yep. It's got that little hook behind it on the wall. If you tipped it over just a little bit, just a little teensy weensy little bit and put magnesium tape between the hook and where the hook was supposed to go and then ran the magnesium tape somewhere else and set it off as a fuse. Mm, Okay. So how exactly would you time such a thing to fall on and kill him just at the right moment? My my assumption would be that the action of Tris, Jenny, and Peter r- running into each other in the garden outside was sort of their communicative cue for whatever operation Jenny and Tris had arranged. Mm, okay. You know, maybe someone was looking in the window and waved to someone who was setting off the fuse, like... But wouldn't wouldn't Lady Bailey have seen if someone else was looking in the window? All she saw was a bright 
flash of light, which yeah, a bright flash of light, definitely know, yeah, from, from the, the sun, sun, not from magnesium tape. But like that conversation was ridiculous. <laughs> by the way, can we talk about that for a sure, moment? Sure, of course we can. We we sit down with Lady Bailey and we run through what she was doing. We establish she was the one whose boots were in the garden. Well, yeah, I had only read about halfway through the book at, at that time. And Flex was speeding to catch up to me. And he was like, there's all these mentions of things being bright. And I went, oh, that explains that one clue. But I won't tell you what it is. It's very strange for her to just be like, yeah, it was like really bright in there, like the sun. All right, Herds, I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm coming to the realization that I've missed something. Crazy. I don't have any particular pages open with any clues on it that I'm going to get you with next week. You haven't missed anything. Well, here's the thing is that there's there's two clues that I haven't used yet. This is a murder mystery. We got to use all the clues. So okay. the two that I've forgotten. Yeah. One is the gavel in the fireplace. Okay. It's a gavel. Unrelated to the murder, but important nonetheless. Justice. Other one is the fact that not all of the equipment was smashed when the cabinet fell over, which meant probably that some of it was already on the ground, as in it didn't fall. And all of the bits that were smashed were smashed by it falling onto them rather than them falling off the uh -oh, cabinet. Uh -oh. And in a murder mystery, Ben, what is the one certain way to ensure that someone is dead? Uh, check their pulse. Kill him yourself. What? Crazy. So how does that line up with the alibis? If he was dead when the cabinet fell on top of him, surely Jenny killed him because we're clearly establishing Triss can't do anything for himself. Did they get caught trying to set it up and they had to kill him early? I'm just going to let you think right here because I'm I'm fascinated where your mind is going. What have I missed? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do he know. You said I have to get it perfect. You do have to get it perfect. You said I have to get it perfect. It has to be perfect. Because Jenny did it by having the cabinet fall over with magnesium tape because she's actually in love with Triss is a very nice, tidy, brief solution that is still a 100% true statement. But I've missed something in the details <laughs> that Herds is going to ping me on. This is hilarious. I'm loving this. This is, I haven't watched you struggle with a mystery in a long time. That and is untrue. No, that is what I, not Don't in this way. I don't see you struggle like this. Don't lie like not, this. Not not a murder mystery. That you're like, oh, I know everything. Everything's so obvious, and now you're like, actually, hold on, maybe, maybe there's an even twistier twist. I don't really think there <laughs> is. I think I'm just trying to be precise so that I don't get pinged for points by you being pedantic. Oh, that's my job. That's my entire job on this show. To be I agree it's your job. I'm not trying to stop you from being pedantic. I just don't want you to blame uh, me for you being a pedant. A pedant. Uh, I won't blame you if you happen to miss the most important truth of all. All right. What are you going to say? What's your answer to all of this? This truth that I'm throwing at you. Peter and Jenny had a confrontation in which Jenny killed Peter Bailey, probably by hitting him over the head with something. Okay. Because otherwise it would have stood out. Sure. They set his body up so that stuff would fall on it, like so that the cabinet would fall on it, then went up and used the magnesium tape and the gavel. What does the gavel have to do with it? It's a great question. How is the gavel- How does the gavel factor into anything? Why is it even a required part of this mystery is what I was- Because they could have just set up a fuse, right? In the fireplace upstairs, because it'd be the same chimney. That doesn't explain the gavel, though. The gavel is still just- it's just in the fireplace. I think you've done enough. I think- I think- <laughs> I think- I think this is fine. What does the gavel have to do with the- f Why is the gavel <laughs> in the fireplace? 
Herds, we have to get to the bottom of this. It's going to kill me. I'm really enjoying this. I'm really, really enjoying you talk about this gavel. Yeah, look, I can't tell you. I don't want to talk about the gavel. I need you to just give me your best shot. It seems like you're starting to put something together, some sort of theory here. What does the gavel have to do? Give it your best shot. That's all I'm going to say. Give it your best shot. It's a gavel. It's weighty. It has to be something to do with weight. It can't have pulled the cabinet over because that's ridiculous (laughs) and we don't need that because the tape's already doing that job. You could say that they used the weight of the gavel to, like, pull something down the chimney. But the only thing that's gone down the chimney is tape. How hard is it to get tape down a chimney? And if you were to use a weight to get tape down a chimney, why would you use a gavel? <laughs> Look, I think maybe we <laughs> maybe we want to leave this one. Maybe we want to just move on. So let's summarize. Please summarize for me. I don't think I can. Tristram yep. and Jenny. Mm-hmm. Are Good. in love. Great. Lovely. Get them married. To 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 get the money yep. and get on out of there, they go to murder Lord Peter Bailey by blunt force directly to the back of the head. And then to obfuscate the time of death, they rig with magnesium tape mm-hmm. and a gavel for some reason. <laughs> the cabinet to fall on top of his dead body soon after he's dead so that they have an alibi for the most obvious cause of death, which is the cabinet falling on him. I like it. I like it. The will is missing because Tristram was unhappy with how much Jenny got in the new will. Because if they're going to end up together because they love each other and he's now lost the power because Jenny has it, so he's tried to hide that from Jenny more than anyone else. Makes sense to me. I think that covers everything. All right, is that your final answer? Why a gavel? Why a gavel, indeed. That's... We'll talk about why gavel next week. Uh, The gavel is great. Uh, I hope so. We're doing chapter 33 to the end of Death Comes Tomorrow by Robert Thorogood, and I will see you for the finale. It's going to be a wild ride. You will see them, Herds, not me. Am I going to be dead before then? You're all going to be dead by gavel to the back of the head. Oh, good Lord. It's going to be great. This is Death of the Reader on 2SCR 107.3.